In this episode, we speak with Arturo Elidondo, co-founder and CEO of The Every Company, which is an American biotechnology company that develops proteins and other products traditionally sourced from animals. The company's versatile proteins are proven solutions for a variety of applications, from bars and beverages to bakery, alt-meat, and novel foods and beverages that benefit from a protein boost. Arturo has led The Every Company as its co-founder and CEO for the last decade, from concept through commercialization. The company has raised over $200 million from notable investors. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Arturo, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, RJ. Excited to be here. Yeah, this is a very cool company that you started and a very cool topic. You know, this area of animal-free foods and ingredients, it has long been a trend. So delighted to kind of dig in on this topic. Why don't we start with where you started with the idea back in 2014? What compelled you to enter this space? You know, I grew up in Texas and I'm Mexican by heritage. And so like any good Texan, I had my barbecues every Sunday. And like any good Mexican, I had my two extra breakfasts every morning. And animal protein was a huge part of my life. And I never really thought about where my food came from until I made my way into government. That was my first love. And I went to DC and went to the US Department of Agriculture. And I was in the sub-agency that was responsible for overseeing and regulating basically every sort of house in the country. And for the first time, I connected the dots between the food I was putting on my plate every day and where it was actually coming from. I, you know, I had no idea that we started over a million animals every hour just in the U.S. to feed less than 5% of the world population. It was really shocking for me to understand and appreciate just the scale at which we grow animals today and the impact that it has. And so it planted the seed for me. And I realized that ultimately there had to be a different way of producing animal protein at scale. I went to Geneva and I studied diplomacy and I focused my research on global food security. And that's when I learned about what animal agriculture, what the impact was when it came to the number one cause of extinction on earth, the number one cause of deforestation in the world, and that it is the number one cause of emerging infectious diseases like COVID, like SARS, like MERS, like swine flu. And so realizing that if we can fix food and specifically fix the way that we make animal protein at scale, we can make a dent in some of the world's biggest problems. For me was this realization that there was no better way for me to spend my time on this earth than to focus on this problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I was really inspired to then double down on finding solutions to do this. And then I realized that there were all these different technologies out there using plants, using cells, right? And then and fermentation, which is what we do. And I fell in love. Mm -hmm. Your solution, when compared to maybe some of the other popular brands out there, seems to be more scientific, perhaps more complicated to the novice rather than, you know, just saying our products are derived from these plants. You take yeah. a different approach. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, well, ultimately, my big aha moment was understanding, look, plants, my senses are only going to get us so far because plant proteins are just different than animal proteins. You can't expect them to be the same and to function and taste in the exact same ways. And I knew like, you know, from my mom in Texas, you know, my cousins in Mexico, you know, perception is reality oftentimes when it comes to food. And so if people perceive something to be inferior or be different, then oftentimes they can be closed off to it. And so I knew that if we could work with the same building blocks, in this case, produce real animal protein that has the amino acid profile, that has the digestibility, the functionality, the bite, the taste, then we would be able to reach a consumer base that is far greater than the people willing to tolerate alternatives. Because ultimately what we do is we 3D print the same DNA sequence that code for any animal protein on the planet. We feed that to a yeast and the yeast is able to print out the exact same protein. And the technology has been around for 40 years. So it's, it's something that's already been used to make a lot of the vaccines, the drugs, and also life-saving medicine like insulin that used to come from pigs. And now it's all made using fermentation. For me, it just felt like, although it was deep tech and it would take longer to commercialize, that the potential of this was so massive. Mm -hmm. And the tangible product, at least that I'm more familiar with that your company produces is the egg white. Can you tell us about, is that the large majority of kind of what's driving your sales today? What are the other applications? Yeah, so we have a portfolio of egg proteins. You know, we focus on egg proteins broadly and egg white proteins specifically. But when you think about an egg white, usually people think, oh, it's albumin and it's one class, it's one protein. But in an egg, there are over 200 different proteins. In the egg white alone, there's over 100. And so we produce the different kinds of proteins that can yield essentially functionalities that are even better than what the chicken can make. And so the bulk of our cells come from the portfolio of egg proteins. We have some that focus more on egg white applications, like making macaroons and meringues and angel food cakes, but also you know using them as a basis for egg replacement as well, for scrambles and frittatas. And then one of our other egg protein platforms is actually for beverages. And that's the one where we're currently selling more actively. Mm -hmm. It's to make high protein drinks and food products but without having to add any masking agents, any artificial sweeteners or chocolate, vanilla or strawberry, like the way that you normally would with protein drinks right now is that they're kind of gross for a lot of people. And, you know, they get clumpy and they, you, they have all of these other ingredients. And so we work with companies like Pressed Juicery, for example, to make a high protein smoothie. We launched actually a protein boosted alcoholic drink with pulp culture. So it's a better for you booze, essentially. And so that's where the bulk of our sales are coming from. Fascinating. So the large majority is selling directly to food product company or beverage companies. Do you do any direct selling? No, no. That's also something that we're really proud about, which is the B2B model is very clean. And for us, that's like how we can scale the fastest. Really, for me, is what is going to allow us to deliver on our mission and vision as quickly as possible. And for us, it's, you know, why I reinvent the wheel when we can tap into customers that touch billions of people every single day. And with the flip of one switch, we can access those consumers, those billions of consumers through, you know, one or two or three food companies. Mm -hmm. I was interested on your take of the overall space. I remember when, you know, Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat were 
highly prevalent in the press and raising a lot of money, and then they hit the shelves at at Whole Foods. Now, like uh, the attention has seemed to wane a bit. But I was mm-hmm. curious to get your take on how the overall kind of landscape has evolved over the recent years. Yeah, it's tough to look at those companies as the proxy for the broader ecosystem because, again, they're using plants. There's a limitation to that. And they're B2C companies. I think ultimately what is really exciting is the advent of the deeper tech approaches, the products that fundamentally deliver across every dimension, right? The taste, the texture, the bite, the nutritional profile, and can be used in all the ways that animal proteins are currently used, but without any compromises. And that's what I'm really excited about because there are three big pillars, right? Using plants, using fermentation, then using cells. And only one of those has been meaningfully commercialized, which is plants. But fermentation and the cultivated technologies are just in their infancy right now. And so my sense is that we're very much adjusted to the iceberg right now. Yeah, I've seen an episode on you know one of the popular magazine shows about the manufactured meat you yeah. know, grown. In, you know, Do you find that that's going to be in still early stages for that? But do you find that that's going to be a big area? Yeah, so I do think that there's going to be a big area for everything, especially for hybrids, right? I think, again, we see these as individual pillars, but the combination of these technologies can also be really powerful. So, for example, we signed a partnership with Alpha Foods. They're one of the leading plant-based meat companies. And some of our proteins help improve the bite and the texture and really the consumer experience. And so when consumers are now biting into these products, and even some of the cultivated ones, right, they don't need to be entirely cell-based. You can add a little bit of it, and that can really make a big difference in terms of the consumer experience. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately for us, the realization that for all of the companies that are working to change our food system is that we cannot forget that we have to deliver on the two things people care most about, which is taste and price. And if Mm -hmm. we cannot deliver on those two things, then it's not a winning proposition. And I think right now the products in the market do not meet either one or two of the core tenants. And that's where ultimately these technologies will make a massive difference, I think, on both angles, but specifically on the taste and how do we get products to just be kick-ass and truly uncompromised. Mm -hmm. One of the areas we typically touch on are investors, and you've raised quite a bit of money over the years. You have some notable investors. How has that process been? Was it easy? Was it challenging? And then how did you decide on ultimately which investors you'd partner with? It's a fantastic question because we're the fifth oldest company in the entire ecosystem. There's probably over 400 at this point. And I was pitching investors when food and tech was this crazy concept. I didn't even know that this was even possible, especially when you say like we're making eggs without chickens. You know, a lot of our customers and some of our investors are also some of the world's biggest food companies. And they saw that this was ultimately an inevitability because when you have just a more powerful technology. That's how disruption occurs. And we can get it to a better product using a more efficient technology, using yeast in our case, instead of a chicken, right? It's just biologically more efficient to use microorganisms and using whole animals to convert literally plant protein into animal proteins. What chickens are doing right now, we're feeding them grains, right? And, and soy protein and, you know, these plant proteins and ask them to convert that into animal protein. And what we do is we just convert sugar, right? Really much more affordable plant inputs. 
into animal protein using fermentation much more efficiently. And so I think ultimately for us, that was very compelling to investors because the market is over $200 billion for eggs, over 1.3 trillion eggs are consumed every year. And that's only going to continue growing over the next decades as more and more people enter the middle class is that the first thing they do is that they buy animal protein. And so it was relatively straightforward from that standpoint. I think what really helped us differentiate between which investors to work with versus not were the ones that you know, ultimately, I didn't want to have investors that wanted the next Facebook, right? That ultimately had just very different expectations around building tangible products. Like we're building food products. We're a capital intensive business and we're a deep tech business. And so for investors that were looking for a copycat, right? Or for just, you know, a SaaS business that really, you know, it's just a very different ballgame. The IP, the defensibility, the, the barriers to entry, but also the timing and regulatory requirements. I think for me, what was important is to have investors on our cap table that had the right expectations of like what we're looking to build and that they were not looking to flip a company in the next three to five years, but really build a business that could change the world consumes. And, and that was really important. So we added investors like Tamasak and others who look to build generational businesses. And that was really important for us. Do you have any instances where you were educating the investor over a number of years and then eventually they decided to come in? I'm just curious about the persistence in the education process. It's a great question. I don't know. I can't think of any that we really worked on educating over years. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I've seen happen before where an investor is getting up to speed on an overall industry, but it's taking a while. Yeah. I mean, I think what was helpful for us is that we weren't the only company. I mean, that's so important for new industries. It's really difficult when you are the only company. And we were at that point in the beginning, but fortunately we were raising less capital when we were a smaller company. I think now, yes, like there were investors that we had talked to. We didn't do the educating that we had talked to who were not ready at that time, but come the future round, they not only talked to us, but other companies in the ecosystem and were able to build their thesis around the industry and then look back and said, okay, well, you all are within the ecosystem are doing something really special and mm -hmm. different. And so we want to back you. We've seen that, but it was nice that we didn't have to be the ones doing all of the educating. We had other companies essentially doing it through their own fundraising processes. Mm -hmm. There's probably an obvious answer to this, but why did you decide to name the company or change the name of the company <laughs> to Every? So we used to be called Clara Foods and Clara means egg white in Spanish. And it was also a name that I felt would be very palatable for consumers, especially when we're working with deep tech. How do we translate that to the end consumer when it comes to food? However, as we built the technology and the platform, we began to appreciate that this wasn't just an egg white company. We were a protein platform and we've made over 50 different kinds of animal proteins, including other avian proteins and mammalian proteins that all have really unique applications and functionalities. And so we wanted to have a brand that could speak to the platform that could talk about, for example, you know, these high protein smoothies, right? These protein boosted alcoholic drinks and future products that in some ways bear no semblance to the egg that go into completely new markets, new form factors, wanted a name and a brand that could support the entire platform. Mm -hmm. 
Just curious, is there taste to the protein? Not to the one that I just mentioned. So the one for beverages, the reason why you can use it in beverages is because it has virtually no taste. Depending on the concentration, if you add a lot of protein, you start getting a flavor to it, but it's quite magical. So if you're ever in the Bay Area, drop me a line. I'm happy to host it at our lab so you can taste our proteins. Excellent. I'll start putting it in my wine. So tell me about your entrepreneurial journey. What's been the most challenging part? <laughs> the most challenging part of the journey for me has been, quite honestly, like believing in myself and like really trusting my gut, trusting my instincts and trusting myself. You know, I started the company when I was 22. I studied government. All I knew was like the USDA, you know, the, the multilateral organizations. And I had no idea what it was like to raise capital. I had no idea what it was like to build a company. I hadn't managed a team before. And I was hiring people who were twice my age, who were these seasoned industry veterans in industrial biotechnology. And so that was, I think, for a very large part of my first several years, there was a lot of imposter syndrome. And I would look to our investors and advisors and basically everyone for advice. And it got to a point where I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And I think over time, the, the challenging part was tuning out the outside voices because it got to a point where I actually had all the answers myself. No one knows the company better than the founder. And there was something about tapping in and accepting that fact. And that's been very, very helpful because ultimately I can own my mistakes and I can own the decisions when they come from that internal voices. And I realize that I've never regretted a decision that I've made through that inner wisdom and that discernment. And I realized that the decisions that I did regret was when my gut was telling me to go in one direction, but the voices, right? The advisors, our investors were telling us to go in a different direction. How do you best tune into what your gut is telling you? For me, it's been meditation. Number one. Number two is spaciousness. And, and three is like psychedelics have changed my life. And being able to tap into that world has been life-changing for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of you know, different podcast episodes about psychedelics and the impact, the microdosing of it and the impact it can have. Very fascinating. I'd love to delve into it, but we're coming up on time and I have two final questions for you. Yeah, go for it. One is, can you tell me about a person who has had a profound influence on your life? My mom. Yeah. She like gave up everything for me to have the life that I have. I mean, my parents broadly, we grew up on the border. I was just like little Mexican boy from Laredo, Texas. And I remember when we moved to the US and I was really upset, like, you know, why? And you know, she said, so you can go to a good college and get a good education and be someone uh, and make, make a difference. And she had a really tough life. And so for me, you know, for better or for worse, I carried that weight of like, I want to build something of value that can make life a little easier for others. And especially for those that are most marginalized. I mean, there's so many beings out there, including animals who have no voice, who have no one to speak for them, the environment and the the world burning, that I realized that I had to use my life to do something that I could tell my children and grandchildren about that I was proud to have done. So my mom really helped instill that value. Fantastic. Last question. Can you tell us about a charity cause or other endeavor that you're passionate about? I am a 
big fan of like impact driven philanthropy and specifically like the Good Food Institute, the Humane Society of the United States, the Humanely, like all of these amazing nonprofits that are working like on the ground floor, helping advance this ecosystem. There was this report by BCG that looked at all the different kinds of investments that you can make when it comes to reducing carbon emissions. And from out of every single sector, alternative proteins was the number one most capital efficient way of preventing carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. And so any organization that is focused on doing that, especially in the nonprofit world, I think is, is just doing a tremendous amount of good in the world. Excellent. Well, Arturo, I want to thank you again for taking the time to chat with us today. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thank you, RJ. It was an honor to be here.